for the last three years or so, we have been on and off teaching our way through the Gospel of Luke. Now, uh, it hasn't taken us three years to get through the whole thing. We've taken some breaks, but it's an important story uh, that is forming us as uh, we grow as a community. Uh, the Gospel stories are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, arranged to make a point about him. These, these gospel stories uh, help us understand what Jesus means for the world. And uh, every, all four gospel stories uh, are, are complementary accounts that tell the Jesus story from a slightly different angle, a different slant. But all four tell the story of how in Jesus, God has become king. That, uh, that Jesus is the king. Uh, There are kings and there are kingdoms, and there is a king and a kingdom. And the good news uh, of King Jesus is uh, good news for the whole world. And if we have ears to hear, we find that uh, we will be put right, healed, and set free if we enter his kingdom, come under his rule that he's established. And so today we're starting uh, a series, we're heading into the last leg of Luke, and we're calling this series The Returning King. And uh, in a few weeks, we'll look at his arrest and, and trial and crucifixion. That will be the rejected king. And then we'll culminate the gospel of Luke on Easter, the risen king. And so this next, uh, next bit of Luke will only take Jesus about a week and a half or so in his life. Uh, but it will take us several months. So we're going to kind of slow down and look at how each one of these, these stories of Jesus in his last week and a half of life are loaded with meaning for who he is and what it means to follow him. Sound, sound good? Should we get Luke done? <laughs> I'm kind of ready. I'm like, let's do a different book. But I, at the same time, as I re-got into Luke again this week, I found myself just going, this is so profound and so important. And so we meet Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. For the last 10 chapters of Luke, he's been headed resolutely toward Jerusalem, the city of his destiny. And we meet Jesus just outside Jerusalem in Luke 19, verse 11. So if you have a Bible, turn it to Luke 19, verse 11. Uh, And if I get there before you, you can take a look at the screen. So Luke chapter 19, Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear all at once. Now, verse 11 starts with a story already in motion. It begins with people listening to this. Uh, What is it that they were listening to? They were listening to Jesus' pronouncement to a little wee man named Zacchaeus, right? And Zacchaeus was this exploitive, extortionist-type character who promised to give back four times all that he had cheated uh, out of other people. And so he is confessing his cheating lifestyle and says, I'm going to give back what I have wronged people and more because of his interaction with Jesus. Jesus transforms him and Jesus announces that today salvation has come to this house, to Zacchaeus's wee little house. Um, Now, uh, the announcement of salvation would have been ringing in the ears of the Jewish audience around Jesus. They would have heard the word salvation, and they would have immediately thought about the time when God would rescue his people, when God would forgive their sins and free them from their oppressors, ending their exile for good and thus putting the world as it ought to be. 
Now, there was a phrase for this, this saving of the world. Did anybody know what the phrase was? Kingdom of God, right? So kingdom of God was this phrase that the Jews had that meant the rule of God. It meant heaven's will done on earth. All things in creation as they ought to be. Kingdom of God meant God's way of putting the world right. It meant no more injustice, no more idolatry, no more oppression, sickness, and sadness. It meant total shalom, this Hebrew idea of all things webbed together in perfect harmony. And so this would have been ringing through the ears of Jesus' hearers. They would have been thinking about the world set right. And so naturally, they asked the question, if today salvation comes to this house, what is the kingdom of God coming immediately? Right? So they, they're wondering, is the kingdom of God, this world-writing project of God, is it going to happen all at once, right now? Let me tell you why this matters to you. This matters to you because you also want the world to be set right. Every one of us craves the world as it ought to be. We long for the world to be set right. We want the world to be right. We want an end to war and violence and sickness and racism and all of the junk that tears society apart. Every human craves the kingdom or some version of it, right? And this is Jesus' concern here, right? We all have these competing visions or imaginations of the kingdom. See, in Jesus' day, uh, the people hearing Jesus would have immediately thought, about a violent overthrow of Israel's enemies. They would have prayed their prayers and sharpened their swords and they would have been delighted to see Roman blood running through the streets. Sorry, oh, there's kids in the room. That's right. And, um, uh, and, and, and so they, 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 this is a, like a terrible passage for like kids, but uh, kids just hang in with me. It's good stuff. Uh, and so the, the people in Jesus' day would have thought, of course there'll be a war and we'll throw out our enemies with, with violence. Today... When we imagine the kingdom, the world as we ought to be, my, my estimate is that most Western people, most people uh, in this room would imagine the world set right and they would think of material comfort. You would think of you with more and more comfortable, right? We think of individual happiness. Now, here's the problem with our competing visions of the kingdom. It's more material comfort at the expense of someone else's discomfort. Or it's my individual happiness to the total neglect and concern of other individuals, right? And so this is why Jesus tells stories to help us get in on his vision of the kingdom. He tells these parables. Luke says he told a parable because they were wondering if the kingdom would come at once. Parables are Jesus' main way, his main vehicle of getting across the message of his kingdom. They, they give us an orientation to what the kingdom is and how it works. They're disarming because they're not direct. They are imaginative. They have layers to them. And they're highly challenging stories. And they leave us asking, where, where do I fit in the story 
If you've ever built anything uh, or uh, been a part of a building project that had contractors and an architectural plan, you know how important it is for the contractors to grasp and submit to the vision of the architect, right? Because when they don't, there's mayhem. And you go over budget and things uh, erupt into conflicts. And so there is a vision of the good life. There is a vision the creator God has for the world as it ought to be, as the architect of humanity. And he subcontracts with individuals and communities just like you and us, right? And he subcontracts with us to make culture and build society, But the only way the world can be set right is if we pay attention to the stories of Jesus that tell us how the kingdom comes, that work the blueprints into our imaginations. Are you with me? Okay. So here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 12. He's explaining this is how the world set right. He says, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. A mina is worth about four months' wages. It's not an incredibly large sum of money, but it's a decent start to get you going. Four months' wages for the daily kind of average worker in Palestine. And so he says, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects, it says, hated him. And sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, one of the interesting realities about the story Jesus tells is it's not original necessarily to Jesus. Jesus is picking up the news headlines and kind of putting his own spin on it. One one interesting reality behind this is that the actual... This is actually a historical thing that happened. Herod the Great in 40 BC, 40 years... 45 or 43 years before the birth of Jesus, had himself appointed king. He had to go over to Rome, sail out of Judea to Rome, and have himself appointed king by Mark Antony, the guy who fell in love with Elizabeth Taylor. And, uh, and then he, in 4 BC, his son, Herod the Great's son, Archelaus, that's a fun one to say, Archelaus, uh, and he, he had... Uh, had himself appointed king as well. So he went to Rome to ask for a kingship, but at the same time, a delegation of Jews went, chased him to Rome and protested to Caesar and said, we don't want him to be king. He's a horrible guy. He's wicked and we don't want him. Well, it worked. Instead of being king, he was an ethnarch. It was like a sub-king. And so this was something that happened in Jesus' own day. And so now Jesus is grabbing the headlines and he's making a parallel with some significant differences. This time, though, Jesus is from the line of David, the king of Israel, and he actually has a legitimate claim by birth to the throne to be Israel's true king. And by describing the nobleman in this way, and went off to a distant land to return, Jesus is saying that the kingdom does not come all at once. So in the story, Jesus says there's a gap. There's an interim period between the inauguration of the king And the consummation of the king, the kingdom is here now and not here. It's here, not here, now, not yet. And so what he's saying is there's a time when the king will be away. And while the king is away, there is an opportunity to either join with the king or resist his rule. 
In other words, the kingdom comes in two installments or two advents. We just celebrated Advent the, uh, about the appearing of the king, Jesus, in humility. And there's another advent, another appearing of the king in power. And so if the kingdom doesn't come all at once, how is the world to be set right? This is the question we should be asking as we listen to the parable. If the kingdom doesn't come all at once, how then does the world get set right? And so Jesus is going to tell us four things about how the kingdom comes, about the, the, the way that God's world writing project is put into play in this parable. Look at verse 13 with me. So it says the nobleman, the person who's to be king, called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. The first thing Jesus tells us about how the world is set right is this. The king's business is carried out by the king's servants. The king's business is carried out by the king's servants. So when the king in this parable tells the servants to put the money to work until he comes back, he's essentially saying this. He's saying to his guys, hey, do the stuff I would do with the stuff I give you. Do the things I would do if I was physically present with you. Carry on my business like I were here with my stuff. Do the stuff I would do with the stuff I give you. Do the stuff I would do with all the stuff I give you. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Simple command. You know me. What's the stuff I do? You do that as if you were me or I were you and do it with all the stuff that I give you. Simple. So the king's business is carried out by the king's servants. The king has an expectation. He goes, hey, I I expect you to be trustworthy with all the stuff that I generously give you, with the stuff that I graciously endow you with, right? Here's something you didn't earn, right? He goes to his servants, he says, here's 10 minus, just four months wages. You didn't earn it, right? You didn't generate it with your own industrious effort. I'm giving it to you. It's a gracious endowment. I, I just, I delight and you partnering with me in my work. And so here you go. And so here's this thing that you didn't earn. Make something with it. Do something with it. Apply it. Use it for my name and my purposes. The king's business is carried out by the king's servants. I think one of the things that often happens with Christian people is we begin to get, you know, look forward to the next thing that God has for us. What's the next exciting thing that God wants me to feel or know or whatever? And most of the time he's looking back and going, what was the last thing I said? So you know how I gave you my word and my spirit? What are you doing with that? You're putting that into play. How are you handling your responsibility with your team at work, with your neighbor, right? with your family? How are you handling the finances I've given you? Like, oh, what's the next cool thing that you want to do, God? And he's like, what's the last 10 things that I said to you? Right? How's that going? Oftentimes, too, we look for God to answer our prayers and we pray things that we ought to pray, like, God, would you please take care of my friends who are suffering today? Good prayer, bad prayer. Good prayer. God, please take care of my friends that are suffering. Uh, nine times out of ten, how do you think God answers that prayer? His servants, right? You. Right? He's like, 
Okay, good. Go be a friend and take care of your friend who's suffering. (laughs) I've given you what you need to do that. And so oftentimes, he asks us to step in and carry out his will in his place. Now, how does God set the world right? Through faithful servants who do the stuff God does in the character God does it, in the manner God does it. Now, here's where most religious folks, I think, start to foul things up. Right? Most religious type folks get hear these words, oh, do the stuff God does, and okay, yeah. They start thinking of churchy things, right? So, okay, go to church and read my Bible and pray. And I'd say, yeah, good, do those things. Don't neglect those things. Those are all avenues and pathways through which you get to know the king. And you can't do the things the king did without knowing him. But think about this parable like this. The king is giving his servants resources, and it's a picture of the kingdom. The parable, I think, is envisioning all of life as a gracious gift given by the king to be stewarded for the king. Are you with me? Is this making sense? Is it scary how profoundly simple this is? And how you're like, oh, but... That's too simple because I can live that, but I don't want to live that. We're going to come to that next. Okay, so here's the thing. The question is, how do I see my life? How do I see it? Do I see it like this? That my every moment, my every resource, my every skill is something that God can use. Right? My every moment, my every resource, my every skill is either mine or it's his. Right? Uh, it's either for what I deem important or it's for what he deems important. See, in God's kingdom, there's uh, literally every dimension of life has opportunity to be given and directed toward God and his purposes or withheld and used for our purposes. The kingdom advances as we choose to be servants. Look at the difference here in the text, too. In the story, there are the servants, the ten servants, who are given these ten minas. Hey, go do the stuff I would do with the stuff I give you. And then there is a group of people called the subjects or the citizens. They're two different words. And the citizens are remotely related to the king, and they're characterized by rebellion. And the servants are intimately connected with the king, and they're characterized by partnership. The the only proper way, the only proper way to relate to a king is to relate as a servant. Everything else is just a confusion of identity. If I think, you know, I actually, I ought to have the throne in this area. That is a confusion of identity. Because he is king or he's not. I am his servant or I'm not. And so the world isn't going to be set right through people who knowingly or ignorantly keep all their stuff to themselves and see life is all about them. That's actually what fouls up the world. The kingdom comes through people who see every relationship, every dollar, every breath, every vocation, every moment, every interaction as charged with kingdom potential, as an opportunity to advance God's project Uh, and who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of others. See, servants elevate others above themselves. This is what servants do. This this happens in big ways and small ways. For for me, I'm often challenged, right, by by my wife, who's typically far more generous than I am, right? And and our joke is she's going to get all the reward for all the stuff that she makes me be generous in, 
And it's like, wow, man, I'm excited for you to get to heaven. Um, <laughs> but, right, it's, we're challenging those moments. Oh, we should bring a meal to that person. Oh, we, we can actually engage here and be an encouragement. Or we can't. It's taking notice of what we have, what we possess. You possess a skill. You possess a quality. You possess something. You can use it for you or you can use it for the kingdom. And so in this next verse, Jesus continues to tell us about the way the kingdom comes. So first, the king's business is carried out by the king's servant. Uh, the next thing is that Jesus shows us how the world's set right. Look at verse 14. The, the subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Whoa, how about that? So Jesus tells us that behavior is not... The focus of the kingdom. It is big, it is important, and it matters, but the parable tells us that the kingdom is joined and resisted or resisted by something much deeper than just behavior. It's about desire. This is the second thing. The kingdom of Jesus, the king, the second thing Jesus shows us is that the kingdom comes through desire. Okay. Now, one thing that the Bible makes abundantly clear from Genesis to Revelation is this. God wants us. God loves us. God is for us. God pursues us. He longs for you. He loves you without you doing anything. I mean, for me, you get this a little bit as a parent. Like, I, I'm not a big crier. I get watery. I'd like to be a better crier. I just hit this roadblock where my eyes get wet and then I'm done. But, I, you know, I, I, when there's a breakthrough, it's fun. But... Uh, uh, the only, you know what gets me? My kids are born, right? Like all three times I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a wreck and I'm weeping because I just, I love them and they're like useless, right? They just flop and cry. They can't do anything for me, but I love them and the creator God is this way. He wants us. Whether you can do something for him or not, he's like, you can't. You can't do anything for me. In fact, not until I help you and form myself in you. And so what happens is this. God wants us, but without his help, without his intervention, we don't want him. From Genesis to Revelation, this is evident. We Jesus uses the language of hate, right? The subjects hate him. We don't want him. Let me tell you what the word hate means in Greek. It means hate. Right? It, it, it means strong detest. It's, uh, Jesus longs for us, but we don't naturally long for him. The king desires to bring peace and righteousness and justice and holiness as he establishes his rule in you and me. But humans prefer to rule themselves. Our affections are set on us. We don't want him to be king because we want us to be king. So look at the roadblock in the story. The roadblock in the story to the kingdom isn't a lack of information or an effort. It's desire. The roadblock to the kingdom is desire. We don't want this man to be our king. It says that rebellion isn't motivated by what's politically advantageous or what's better for people, but it's personal. Right? It's, it's, Jesus is saying the subjects and the citizens hate him. The word is highly charged here. It's how I feel about spiders, right? And so when my kids or my wife says, kill this spider, I'm like, please, you, right? We all go to the other end of the house and let them go away. I also feel this way about cats. I don't care what you think. I hate, what in the world? They're narcissists. They're not going to be in the new creation. There's no way. All they care about is themselves. 
Anyway, um, everything we do in life comes from this place of affection. It all comes from a place of love. Every choice we make is pulled by what has our affections, what captivates us. So if, if you're not a sociopath, you will do things you don't want to do for someone that you care about. In other words, you all have stronger affections, stronger loves that drive you through things that maybe aren't your first inclination, right? And so one of the things uh, that we see in this is that the kingdom is about desire. We pull toward what we love. The story tells us that we are first and foremost rebels in our default mode of existence. Left to ourselves, we will reject the king. Not because he's too unbelievable. Not because his standards are too high and difficult. Not because religion is the opiate of the masses or a crutch for the weak. But simply because we don't want him. We prefer our own kingdom. So here's the question this week. Where are you vying for your own throne? Where are the places for you where you say, I don't want you to be king. I I know those places in my life. I know those places where I tend to go, God, I don't want to trust you here. God, I want control here. God, I I want so badly to be independent from you here. And those are the places where he keeps inviting back to trust, trust me. Will you trust me here? Will you yield to me here? Will you find your peace in me here? Do you know those places in your life? Are you bringing them under his rule? With submission. It's how we serve. So this is, this is why, you know, the thing that keeps you from being the king's servant isn't his believability, it's his desirability. I, th- I think we can all make room for a God who's capable of breaking into time and space and doing stuff. But the question is, do you want him? Do you want him? See, the kingdom isn't primarily behavior modification or sin management. It's actually something deeper. It's about where our heart is aimed. It's ultimately about who and what we love. Loving the king results in loving the stuff the king loves and the people the king loves and the way that he loves. So you can be very morally upright. You can be very good outwardly. And still have very warped desires. Let me just take a benign example. I can appear to be a very good dad. Oh, he uses illustrations about his kids. And yet, I could, in theory, be more concerned with how you think about me as a dad than actually being a good dad. Right? And so, my desires can come from a warped place, but my behavior can seem right. And in the end, some, at some point, if that is my desire, I will make choices that are not good for my kids, but are good for me in my perception. Right? The same is true for you. You might seem like, I'm a very active, engaged Christ follower, but maybe the thing that's underneath it is a fear or pride. What is captivating our love see you can be outwardly good but inwardly warped and so the kingdom work is to make you a new creature with a new heart with new desires this is the ministry of the holy spirit and he comes in to make us new to give us a new heart with new affections to reorder our loves you need him to intervene by the way if he doesn't intervene 
right? You'll end up chasing your own selfish version of the world set right, your own kingdom, unless he makes you a new creature, unless he begins the work of reordering your loves toward him and his selfless vision of the world set right, you won't be able to chase it. You won't be able to go there with him as a servant. All right, here's the third thing. Right? So this is the element of the story that we really struggle with as Westerners. Look at verse 15 with me. He was made king, however, and returned home. I love this. Whether you want him to be king or not doesn't really matter for him and his kingdom. He wants you to be a part of it, yet he will be king no matter what. And so he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Whoa, not bad. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. Notice the language. It's your mina. It's your resources that have earned and created more. This is Jesus, the great theological storyteller. tells us something with every word. Your mina has earned five more. His master answered, take charge of five cities. Then another servant, or the other one, literally, came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Here you go. Right? It's like when your selfish cat brings you mice. And you're like, I didn't want that. Right? <laughs> Told you. They're awful. Okay. Um, I'm bummed. Now that's all you're going to remember from this. So anyway, (laughs) don't, just don't. Okay, so what is this telling us? These verses tell us that the king will call all to account, okay? He will call all to account. There's no avoiding this reality. It is the reality of the scriptures that there is a judgment. There is an accounting for every life. There is a holding accountable to what we have done with our time, how we have treated others, what we have done with our stuff, with our influence, with our vocation, with every opportunity and platform and moment. And here is what Jesus is saying it means for the king to hold all to account. It says He's saying this, faithfulness will be rewarded. With this holding to account, faithfulness is going to be rewarded. Faithlessness is going to be rectified, remedied, corrected. See, the king comes to reward faithfulness. Look at how surprising and generous the king is, right? Hey, you followed through with some business. You earned some, like a little bit more money. And here's 10 cities, right? Like his gift, his reward is exponentially more worthwhile than all all that servant had earned. The servant had, had done a little. And that reward is exponentially greater, Right? So, hey, great, you followed through doing my business, doing the stuff I would do with the stuff I gave you, and now you have a greater honor and a greater share in my rule and in partnering with me. And so there is a reward for being faithful to the king, doing with your life what the king would have done with your life. This is important, right? We tend to look to others and go, man, I should be more like that person. I should be more. It's, it's good to be encouraged by others. But recognize that you will be held to account for your life, for your gifts, for your abilities. Right? It isn't bad that one guy made five and the other guy made ten. 
Right? They're each rewarded according to their own lives. At the same time, though, there is justice and judgment for faithlessness. We don't like this idea in the West. We just we tend to really push away from judgment in our culture that we would really like everything to be okay until it hurts us, right? I want everything to be awesome. Everything is awesome until it hurts me, and we don't like it. We don't like it once it gets us, which actually just shows us how selfish our standards are. Right? We're actually not concerned with justice until it gets us. And then, man, we want it. We live in a culture that's lacked a lot of accountability, I think, and we're starting to see the lack of faithful stewardship of power and leadership and the way it hurts the world. And so other cultures, they don't have a hard time with the judgment passages in the Bible. Other cultures outside of ours look at the judgment passage and go, yeah, of course, that's great. Good news. God doesn't, God eventually deals with all that's wrong and, and unjust and hurtful. Now, uh, those same cultures that don't have a problem with the judgment passages look at the forgiveness passages and the turn your other cheek passages and go, whoa, why is that in the Bible? Right? So it's actually very culturally narrow and very arrogant to think that these are somehow, uh, you know, don't fit with God's paradigm. Um, in fact, I would argue that the greater un- discomfort we have with accountability reveals uh, the degree to which we stand in a very privileged place. Right? The, the, the greater, you know, accountability grates on you the greater is your privilege and probably lack of awareness of what injustice feels like. Right? And so we have to be very careful right? as, as, as folks who maybe in this room might not understand what it's like to be on the oppressed side of things. Right? So we have to look at this as good news for the whole world. Right? There is ultimate accounting. There's mercy offered along the way. At one point, though, there is an accounting. Um, Usually, if I don't like accountability, it just reveals the fact that either I'm privileged and don't have any idea what it's like to experience injustice, or it's because I want to justify my own way and I want to push the judge out of the courtroom. And I want to walk away justified with my own behavior. And so, this is an important aspect of good news that there is ultimately justice and we will all answer for something and i want to say this too this is something that i think is important we tend to look at the reward bits of scripture and go well i shouldn't care about reward i want to say you should care about reward now you shouldn't pursue reward and not care about people you should learn to love people and enjoy the fact that god will reward it and that is a good thing it's a good thing that god rewards faithfulness and those moments where it feels really hard to keep being faithful you remind yourself that it will be noticed. It will. It is noticed and it will be rewarded. And so the king's business, his will is carried out by his servants. The kingdom comes through transformed desire and the king will call all to account. We have to live in light of that. But ultimately, finally, there is this. Verse 20. Then the other servant, the other one, said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man and you take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? 
Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have at least collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. Uh, I'm sorry, everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have or think they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Hey, happy new year. So glad the kids are here for this. Ah, harsh, isn't it? And yet, and yet it tells us so much about the kingdom. There is a choice we all have. And the kingdom, this third, this fourth thing I want to tell you that Jesus is showing us in this parable is that the kingdom requires obedience. The original command to the ten servants, what was it? What was the original command? You can, you can paraphrase it to my paraphrase. Go do the stuff I would do with the stuff I give you, right? Go do business. Put this to work. And what has this guy done? The minimalist, right? The minimalist servant says, I hid the money. Look, here it is in a handkerchief for you. Right. So, go do business. I hid it. Okay, so in ancient Judaism, the rabbis would actually say that this mode of keeping money was the least responsible possible. That to put money in a cloth was the least responsible thing you could do. If it went missing, you were held accountable for it. On the other hand, if you went and buried your money in the ground, you were off the hook if it went missing. Right? The, buried in the ground was more secure. It was like FDIC approved, right? Than keeping it in a cloth. So what this guy is saying is he is saying, I did not care at all about what you asked me to do. This man is reporting that he decided not to do what the king has said to do, right? And let me tell you this, friends, it is a dangerous thing, this minimalist effort, this play-it-safe non-participation. It's a dangerous deal. See, this guy gives an excuse, as we all do, when we don't want to take responsibility for our choices, and he says, I was afraid of you. I knew you to be an exacting or harsh business manager. In fact, I would even say you're unfair. And listen to what he says. You take the dividends of what you don't deposit. You reap what you don't sow. True or false? Up to this point, is that true? I think it's a smokescreen. And the king calls him out for it. If you really thought I was so harsh, so exacting, you would have at least put the money in the bank to accrue interest. So the man has shown that he's not even remotely concerned about carrying out the king's work. So much so that he doesn't even do the bare minimum. He simply refuses to participate. And his failure to obey, to participate in the kingdom business, is built on a false premise about the king. He goes, I was afraid of you because I knew you were harsh. Let me ask you this. How are the other servants feeling about the king? Would they say he was harsh? No. I'm generously giving you something that you didn't earn. Go ahead and do the stuff I would do with the stuff that I give you. 
Oh, you made some more? Have ten cities. It's exponentially more than what they had ever earned for him. And so, he's accused him of taking out what he didn't put in. But the reality is, is all the king has done is he's graciously given each servant a sum and all he's doing is he's collecting on his deposit. Right? He's collecting on what his deposit has already earned. It was his to begin with and he's collecting on what he's given. Let me tell you this. Right? God graciously gives you all you need to do for what he will hold you accountable to do. There's nothing he will call you to account on that he hasn't already given you the ability to carry out. That is the truth of the gospel. That he gives you his spirit and he calls you to live out what he has given you and resourced you to do. He will only call you to account on what he has already given you the ability to live out. And so... He collects on his deposit. He rewards the servants with exponentially more than they had ever achieved for him. See, to know the king is to know his infinite grace. To know the king is to see his lavish generosity. See, the faithful characters in the story are called servants. But this guy, this last one, is literally, in the Greek, the other one. The other one does not know the king. He isn't related to him as a servant. Everything he says about the king reveals that he doesn't know him. He's motivated by fear of the one he doesn't know, while the servants are motivated by the generosity of the one that they do know. Obedience always flows from affection. This is why our desires matter. Jesus says in John 14, If you love me, you will obey me. The king calls him wicked because the reality is this wicked other one has only projected his own wickedness on the king, assuming him to be like himself. So let me finish here by saying that minimal non-participation is a serious deal. You can hear the gospel every week here. We lift Jesus up. We're about making him known and becoming like him. It's up to you to participate in his kingdom. That is not a choice I can make or Dave can make or anyone else. We pray it, we long for it, that you would know the king and his generosity and his grace and that you would join him in his kingdom work. So the question this parable has asked you and I is what will our lives reveal? What do they say about what we're doing with what's been given to us? Do our lives say that we actually detest the king and distrust him and we therefore feel we have to protect ourselves and spend all we have on ourselves? Or do our lives reveal that we trust his generous grace and goodness and justice and righteousness and we are willing to expend ourselves on his behalf and on his business because his grace has won us to his love and that our lives are in service to him? See, friends, you'll never be able to risk anything if all you have is fear of him. If you mistake his identity, you won't risk anything for him. But if you know his identity, you'll risk everything for him. If what you have is love for him. See, this happens when you see what he's done for you. That the king isn't harsh and exacting. He's sacrificing of himself. That he actually has become so utterly rejected for the sake of making you totally accepted. This is what he's done in the cross, that he has willingly and affectionately laid down his life for you. What makes you think that he will withhold from you all that you need? 
Isn't he worthy of serving with our whole lives? I'm going to invite the band to come up here and to lead us in these last moments as we move towards communion. And communion is a moment where we again declare that he's good and he's generous and he's gracious. See, the kingdom comes, the world is set right through King Jesus. That he's laid his life down for us and now he puts his work in the hands of his faithful servants. And he puts his desires in our hearts to those receptive and he rewards and holds to account all Summoning each of us to lives of loving obedience. So come to the table today to be reminded again of what he's done to love you. That he's laid down his life, he's given his body and his blood to bring you into his body. Make you a part of his work, his kingdom. We take the bread and the cup as a way of again saying, I am nourished by the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And I go out energized to live as his servant, doing the stuff that he would do with the stuff that he's given. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your generosity. And we want to worship you because you're king. And we want to serve you because it's the only way to rightly relate to the king. So God, we come to the table excited and rejoicing. Because you are not harsh and exacting, you are generous and gracious. So may we heed that, may we be willing to hear that and respond with faith. In Jesus' name, amen.